My best friend, when I was six years old, was James Gunderson. James Gunderson was a bad boy. He was a bad boy because he had older brothers who listened to ACDC. I was six in 1976. You know that prayer team you were talking about? Just that statement makes me feel like someone needs to put a prayer request in for me. James Gunderson was a bad boy and he and I got together in our first year of school in my country. It's called kindergarten. And Mrs. Gardner was our teacher. This is the 70s. Mrs. Gardner had short, brown, plain hair. And for whatever reason, she was wearing clothes that fit her in a former life. And she was the authority in my life at school. I went to Heatherdale Primary School. My best friend, James Gunderson, and I got up to the, the baddest, meanest, most rebellious six-year-old mischief you can imagine. And what that led us to was doing our very first break and enter. <laughs> Told you I was bad. We broke into a house opposite Heatherdale Primary School as two six-year-olds. We smashed the window with a brick and we were so mean, so bad and so rebellious, we took chalk and wrote on the banister of the stairs. But we were six. All we wrote was straight lines. <laughs> like how, you, you can't spell Rowy Wazir. Like, you don't know how to do that when you're six. You just put a straight line down the banister of the stairs of the house you broke into as a six-year-old opposite Heatherdale Primary School with James Gunderson, the bad boy. We got caught on two occasions doing this felony. The first occasion, we were just about to break into uh, the house again and this head pops up from over the fence and says, what are you doing? And we jumped out of our skins. We were like, what is happening right now? He goes, you guys, stop that. And we ran. We disappeared as fast as we possibly could. And then a few days later, Mrs. Gardner stands up in front of our kindergarten, uh, kindergarten class. And she says, Rowan Dredge, James Gunderson, stand up. And this man had rung the school. And he had told the school that there were kids breaking into the house opposite the school. And somehow, have you ever wondered how teachers know this stuff? Right? Like when you're a kid, you think you are the most secretive. Right? 
You can, I mean, they don't know what's going on. But now you're a parent and you think your kids are keeping secrets from you. It's actually you keeping the secret from them that you know the secret they're keeping from you. Right? And so Mrs. Gardner figured it out and she stood us up in front of the whole class and we, we, we knew we were in trouble. And she walked our kindergarten class out of the classroom, out of the school grounds, across the road to the house that we had broken into. And it was the first time in my little short hanging out with James Gunderson life that I realized that I was caught doing something that I was utterly guilty of. I was caught doing something that I should be reasonably and appropriately punished for. I was caught doing something that was entirely fair that if I was disciplined in a way that I would remember for the rest of my life, it would be okay. It would be even scarier that that discipline would be meted out by Mrs. Gardner. And I remember walking across the road with the fear and the trepidation, knowing I was caught, knowing I was guilty, knowing there was no way out of what was happening. In John chapter 8, Jesus encounters a lady thrown at his feet that the religious leaders of the day claim to have been caught in adultery, sleeping with somebody that wasn't her spouse. And this lady is, is caught and he's clearly guilty. And he, she is thrown onto the ground of the floor of the court of the, in the temple in Jerusalem. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up. We'll talk about that text in just a minute. Jesus interacts with the religious leaders, interacts with the lady, and then has this profound experience of being able to look into the eyes of a person where it is obvious that they are guilty where it is obvious that they have done something that deserves punishment of some kind. And Jesus turns the tables, not just on the way that this lady experiences him, but on the way the culture experiences Jesus. You know, I don't know if you've come today because a friend invited you or you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian yet. I just want to say thank you if that's you. If you've come and you're at Liberty Church, Brooklyn, and you're not a Christian, you are in the right place to figure out what it means to be one. And my only encouragement to you is this, trust the friend that bought you and keep coming. And ask every question you need to ask because that's what we're about here. I, I've, I've, I was with this man eating burgers in the southern suburbs of Sydney before when this was just a dream. And my wife and I, we feel invested into you. We feel invested into this message and your story and everything that you're building and everything that you're becoming. But my question to you this morning is, is, is this. What, when you think of Jesus, who do you think of? What do you think of? What image comes to your mind? When you think of Jesus, what, what, how is he portrayed to you, either in popular culture or historical culture? You can do a little bit of research. Uh, I, I love narrative and story and movies. I mean, I was kind of excited that they put that stuff up on the screen. I was, 
I'm thinking, hey, just get me popcorn, don't have to preach. It's going to be a great. I hear the beauty and the beast is kind of on right now. On That is the picture of the church, I reckon. There's, there's beautiful people and there's not so beautiful people, you know. It's just where, where we all live together and it kind of works out happily ever after. Uh, all right, it will, it will, it will. When you think of Jesus, what do you think of? In the narrative, in the stories, particularly the Disney stories, there's these archetypes. If you do a little bit of research on it, there's like 12 dominant archetypes. One of them is what they call the rogue archetype or the rebel archetype or the revolutionary archetype. And our topic this morning, my wife's at Upper West Side right now, our topic this morning is Jesus is the revolutionary teacher. And he sits here in this story in John chapter 8, ready to rock your world if you will allow it. But this archetype is presented to us in, in different ways. This revolutionary archetype is presented to us in, in different ways. Um, it, you may understand the, the rogue archetype or the, regular, uh, the rebel archetype from characters like Wolverine. That is the, the rebel archetype. The, the person who you are going for, but they break rules along the way to get there and you go, oh, that's all right. Have you found yourself actually doing that? You're going, they are doing the wrong thing. Go for it. Come on, keep doing it. It's the Robin Hoods uh, of, of this world. It's the William Wallaces, all right, which I know I've shared with you before, right? I love guy movies because for a guy watching a guy movie, you feel like you're checking out your career options. You're not just watching a movie. There is not a man among us that hasn't turned to the woman in his life and gone, I am William Wallace. <laughs> I mean, she just looks back and goes, can you just get me some water? Okay. It's that, I'm going to pick a fight. It's this, and we, 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 we cheer these people on. We, we want them to win. It's the Maximus, Decimus, Meridius, gladiator it's that guy we want to win if you're if you've got young kids i've got young kids seven and five next month it's flynn rider right it's it's okay you don't have young kids <laughs> captain jack sparrow who knows captain jack yeah that's that rebel that rogue that revolutionary architect that, that, that revolutionary uh uh character that we want them to win well, Jesus precedes this, and in this story, he, he still models what this is like. And so let's have a look at the text, and we'll work our way through it, and then I'll talk a bit about some practical steps. So if the text will come up on the screen, I'm, I'm going to navigate us through it and talk about it bit by bit. Uh, Jesus, if you've got a Bible, open it up. If you are somebody that hasn't got a Bible yet, you'll be able to get one at the end of the service. But also, just look on and your friends, or there it is there. It's pretty big. So Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. Um, Jesus typically uh, stayed, when he was in Jerusalem, typically stayed at a place called Bethany, which was just a couple of miles walk from Jerusalem. In between Bethany and Jerusalem was this place called the Mount of Olives. It was where he retreated to in the final week of his life before he came back into Jerusalem for the Passover festival, which we've just celebrated as from a Christian perspective in the Easter week. So he's close by, he's within the proximity, he's within walking distance and he would be in the temple because 
there was a feast going on, a Jewish feast, the feast of the, the tabernacles, reminding Israel of the provision of God when they were in uh, the desert. And they were celebrating that. And then he did what a normal scribe or a normal disciple would do. It says, her crowd soon gathered. He was back in the temple and a crowd soon gathered. So he sat down and taught them. This was normal for Jesus. But it wasn't just normal for Jesus. It was normal in the culture of the day. If you had a movement of people around you, if you had people that you wanted to teach to, to uh, help them understand the way or the way of your thinking or your philosophy or your methodology, you would walk with these people, teach these people, sit down with these people and guide them in this way. So Jesus wasn't doing anything out of the ordinary at this point. He was doing what was the normal um, standard call on his life. Now he was doing it in the outer court of the temple. What they actually called, interestingly enough, the court of the women, interestingly. And he was doing it in a way that had, there was public access in this environment, but it was still a place of worship. It was still a place that the, the religious leaders of the day had authority. So I want you to imagine a sense of normality, a sense of connectedness, a sense of community, a sense of people gathered, a lot more people than normal, gathered, listening to the words and the person of Jesus. As he was speaking... The teachers of religious law, they are called the scribes, essentially the Jewish lawyers, and the Pharisees, a particular uh, religious sect of the Jews, particularly religious, very, very strict. They bought a woman who'd been caught in the act of adultery. Now, historically, and the research tells us that they dragged her from the adultery bed and threw her at the feet of Jesus, either naked or semi-clothed. So already you can imagine the change in the atmosphere. You can already imagine the fact that they've taken this woman and brought her into a public place and thrown her on the ground at the feet of Jesus in the middle of a normal gathering and then and interrupted the actual situation that was going on. It would be like someone walking straight down this corridor, coming in and then throwing this person down in the, in the, 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 the that way just in front of us, just there. And you know what happens to people when awkward things happen in public? We sort of, you know, we're immediately geniuses at not making eye contact. Like riding the subway in New York. It's like... I'm going to look at the ground. Come on, transit Wi-Fi, work. Come on. <laughs> so I can look at my phone. <laughs> yeah, it happened to me yesterday. But I'm ready for it now because I try to come here as often as I can. So they threw this woman uh, at the feet of Jesus. They put her in front of the crowd. So think of the humiliation. Think of the challenge that's going on. Think of the shame already that this lady is feeling. I mean, there are people in this room that have experienced things like this or close to this. And we feel shame around those things. And we feel um, the challenge of those things and the pain of those things and the memories of those things. And no one even knows. Let alone being exposed at this level. 
But the interesting thing is, the people, these scribes and these Pharisees, they had no interest in the woman. They had no interest in who she was and what her story was and where she came from and why she did it. They had no interest in the man because he's absent. And they ask him a question that interestingly enough, (laughs) this is why I asked you, you know, about your picture of Jesus. Because the one thing that's been burning in my heart across all day today is this. Are you ready for a revolutionary like Jesus to turn up in your life? Are you ready? Are you really, really ready? Because I don't know a revolutionary that's left things the same once they've come through town. And you may be here and you've been a Christian for a long, long time. We don't even, we can't, we are so old, we can't remember how long we've been friends. I mean, you give us another five years and we'll be new friends. We'll be like, hey man, I I think we know each other. Right? That's how long it's been. It's, It's all of these things that are going on. So this woman thrown at the feet of Jesus, they put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus in a slightly mocking and insulting way. The woman, this woman was caught in the act of adultery and the law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? You know what the law of Moses does say to stone her. This is some of the ancient challenges of the history of the Christian faith. There were some really strict rules around morality and ethics and standards of behavior. Things that I don't know that I can only assume in your country are being challenged at the moment. They're certainly being challenged in mine. That's kind of like old-fashioned and out of date. Now, I am not putting my hand up for bringing back stoning, by the way. <laughs> what, I'm, what I'm saying is that they were using a strict letter of the law to make a strict point about a lady. They didn't care about the lady. They were using her, and they were using her to trap Jesus. They didn't care. What do you say? The only question that they ask in this story, what do you say, Jesus? The law of Moses says to stone her. The law of Moses does say to stone her. The thing the law of Moses also says is it should be stoning him too. Actually, says they both should be paying for their the paying the price of their guilt. Because how does it feel when you know you found out? How does it feel when you know you're guilty? I remember crossing the road of Heatherdale Primary School over to the house, going around the back side of the house on the right hand side. Well, Mrs. Gardner asked us how we got into the house and we lied. We said we went in through the laundry door. But we broke a window. And feeling found out, feeling guilty, feeling like I was caught. I mean, how much more did we need to humiliate this lady? How much more did we need to shame her? How much more did we need to demand that the letter and the rule of the law comes down heavily on her? Verse 6, they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. Here's the dilemma that Jesus was in. The dilemma that Jesus was in is that they had found a lady who was rightfully guilty. If he said, no, 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 don't don't stone the lady, he was violating Mosaic law. 
if he said, absolutely, she's guilty, then he was violating the character with which he was doing ministry. Friend of sinners is one of the ways that he was described. Somebody that actually spent time with people that didn't go to church. That's why if you're here today and you're in church for the very first time, you are in the right place. There are not expectations of you other than you would be open to the person of Jesus. That's the invitation that liberty makes you. That's the invitation that your friend made you. They knew when they invited. They didn't know that a crazy Australian was going to be here. But he knew that the, the, the heart of this community is that you would be introduced to Jesus. And it doesn't matter how you come to him. It matters that you meet him. But it equally matters that you're open enough to being revolutionized by him. They tried to trap him into saying something you could use against him. Say No, Jesus violates Mosaic law. Say yes, Jesus violates his own ministry. Say stone her, Jesus violates Roman law. Because they were under Roman rule and the Romans were the only ones that could put somebody to death. Which we just experienced in our own calendar. The Romans decided that Jesus should have been crucified. So he was stuck. Jesus was in this, in this dilemma. He, he, he kneels down and writes in the dust. Now, I don't know whether you think this is interesting or not. Study nerds like me and my wife, we find this stuff interesting. There are, there are four, four, apparently four reasons that Jesus might have written in the dirt. Would you like to hear them real quick? Four reasons. Reason number one, he was reminding the Jewish leaders that the finger of God wrote the Ten Commandments. Yeah. <laughs> And it was a lot more than a, just a line in chalk, right? A lot more articulate and a lot more intelligent. And number two, uh, Jeremiah 17, uh, 13 says this, those of, those of you that turn away will have their names written in the dust. So maybe Jesus was writing the names of the religious leaders in the dust to demonstrate Jeremiah 17 to them. Yeah. Wow, there are some nerds in this room. And it's cool to be a nerd now, isn't it? Say yes, all the nerds, say yes. Number three, a Roman magistrate. (laughs) That didn't go well, did it? Um, A Roman magistrate, they actually wrote their ruling down, then declared it. So maybe Jesus was writing his ruling down. And my favorite, number four, they think maybe he was just doodling and trying to work out what to do next. A commentary says that. It's like, have you ever seen the Seinfeld episode, like the the live scene where he talks about the doctor? You know, where he talks about learning medicine. He goes, why is medicine always a tube and a circle? And if you're in pain, it's lightning. Have you ever heard that? He goes, I, what I'd like to do is I'd go to medical school and I'd change the tube or the circle. And they'd all be sitting there going, I don't know what it is now. It's not the tube or the circle. No. It's like Jesus is going, oh, it's not the tube or the circle. Um, so they thought maybe he was trying to work out what to do. Then, verse 7, they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up and said, all right, stone her. So he passed judgment. And then says, Let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. 
any Shakespeare fans among you? The Merchant of Venice. You can have your pound of flesh, but not a drop of blood. The tension up to that point, guilty. What's the, what's the verdict? What's going to be told? All right, Jesus said, to fulfill the law, stone her. But let's fulfill all of the law. Because the person that gets to stone her is the person who is without sin. The person that gets to pass judgment is the person without sin. The person that gets to invite a personal revolution is the person without sin. And as a Christian, I humbly submit to you, it's the person of Jesus. That might not be your view of the world right now, but keep exploring. And he stooped down and wrote again in the dust. There's not as much commentary on that one. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the ones with the most life experience. How much, just as you get a little bit older, how much doesn't matter as much? I mean, a kid's definition of eternity is the gap between asking for it and getting it. Can I have a cookie? Dad, can I have a cookie? Cookie? Dad, you know when the words get reversed? You know you're in trouble. Right? Right? You know when it's cookie first, dad second. Right? I'm either not listening or not delivering. That's the definition of eternity for a kid. Just on the way in, being reminded, married 20 years, I've been married 20 years. 46 years married, I feel like a novice. <laughs> I, feel like I'm, I feel like a novice. My own parents, 54 years married this year. And I think, oh, what do you learn with wisdom? What do you learn with life's experience? You learn to slip away first because you ain't got nothing. They slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest. Until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with a woman. And then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. <laughs> See, here's what the challenge of learning about the Christian faith is. You can feel accused. You can feel condemned. You can feel like a Christian, maybe actually somebody that's presenting themselves as saying, look, I'm right and you're wrong. You can feel that. I get that. The hardest thing in my country at the moment is that Christians are, appear as, as bigots and narrow-minded and unloving. And I don't experience a Jesus like that in this story. I, I experience a Jesus that takes a lady at her most vulnerable and her most shameful and her most guilty, and he completely revolutionizes the way people experience this. He completely revolutionizes it. And then the beautiful thing I want you to notice from this text, I know we're dancing through it, I'll do some application points in just a minute. Jesus didn't answer the question that the Pharisees and the scribes asked him. What do you say? Jesus delightfully ignored it. I don't say anything except this. Then neither do I condemn you. 
So why don't you go and change the way you live as a result of the encounter that you've just had with me? If we were to make sense of this in our tomorrow, what might it look like? Here are four practical points. Number one, Jesus is into revolutionizing ordinary. He was in the temple, teaching, doing his thing. Sometimes the revolutionary is experienced in the ordinary. Sometimes as a going-to-work person, as an on-the-subway person, as an at-home person, as a single person, as a professional person, as a married person, sometimes the revolutionary is experienced in the ordinary. You don't want to be MIA in the mundane. You don't want to miss out on what God wants to do to you and through you in your everyday life in your everyday rhythm and the everyday opportunity and the, going up, or the getting up and the going to bed rhythm of your kids, the, the going to the office and the standing at the water cooler or the getting uh, the coffee opportunity with your friends. He went out to Bethany in the Mount of Olives and came back to the, the place where he taught his people. And in that moment, he radically changed the way people understood him and the way people understood his ministry. Secondly, I think Jesus re- is into revolutionizing power. Jesus changed the who and how of power. Whether you like it or, or not, or whether I like it or not, the first century was desperately patriarchal. Desperately patriarchal. Men were in charge. Men had the authority. Men had the power. Women in this culture were considered just above cattle. So to throw this woman semi-naked at the feet of Jesus in a public place, to use her to catch Jesus out was of no concern to the people who did it. Because she in this context and in this culture didn't matter. And what Jesus did was profoundly beautiful because when you're guilty and I'm guilty, what happens not just inside us, but what sometimes do we feel like? People back away from us. People don't know what to say to us. People, people are like, whoa, hey, I'm not sure. They don't text you. They unfriend you. And what Jesus did was profoundly amazing and he actually stoops down. And I'm imagining just the act of doing that physically moved him closer to the woman. He's certainly in a, a power structure, brought him down to a much closer level to her. Because I'm on eye level with some of you right now, right? Changes the whole dynamic of what we feel. He revolutionizes power. Learning to drive, I had a 1981 2.6 litre five-speed Sigma, Mitsubishi Sigma. That may mean nothing to you, but to me it was everything. It was red. It had a black louver on the back and a Kenwood tape deck. And it had done so many kilometres, I had to double clutch going down the gears from first to second 
and I loved that car because everybody else had a 1.8 litre, but I had a 2.6. And I remember going up over the hill down Linksley Avenue in Glenhaven. And I came up over the top and down the hill and I just gave it a little bit and let the 2.6 do its thing. Second to third, third to fourth, fourth to fifth, fifth to what's that blue light? And I got pulled over by the police officer. And I'm an extrovert. I don't mind talking to strangers. I'll say hello to the people in my world. And I said, he asked me for my license and I got it out and I handed it over and I said, I'm sorry, mate. He goes, you were going a little quick. (laughs) I said, I know. I didn't think at that point in time we should talk about the 2.6 litre Sigma. I said, well, mate, look, thanks for the job you do. You know, my brother's in the game and I appreciate the stuff you do and I handed over my licence and didn't make eye contact. (laughs) And he walked away and comes back a couple of minutes later and he looks at me and he goes, you said your brother's in the game. I went, yeah, he's a copper down in country New South Wales. You guys do a good job. He hands me back my licence and he said, just drive more slowly next time. Guilty. Guilty. There is no doubt. I gave the Red Sigma with the black louver and the Kenwood tape deck all it had. Guilty. But the man used his power for another reason. Jesus revolutionizes power. You know, in this in this text, just in this text, the word they is used six times. In eleven verses, they. Groupthink sucks. Quote that. (laughs) Tweet that. Snapchat that with a bunny nose. Groupthink gets you to places like this. Groupthink gets you to exploitation. Groupthink gets you to the abuse of power. Groupthink gets you to reinforcing a culture that should never have got there in the first place. Thirdly, Jesus revolutionizes culture. Jesus challenges the why and the way of authority. We've already talked about it. He says, yes, stone her and he violates, uh, don't stone her and he violates Jewish law. Yes, stone her, he violates his ministry. Kill her and he violates Roman law. There was a no win here for Jesus, but he actually decided to implement the law that was fundamental to his ministry. And some of you need to hear this today. Because he said, where are your accusers? Are there any around? No, sir. Then he said these most beautiful words, then neither do I condemn you. Because you know what? It's not what we've done that makes us feel like we can't connect with Jesus. It's the feelings of condemnation and shame. It's the feelings of disconnection and not good enough that are around, that embrace those behaviors that made me feel like I was following And breaking into houses as a six-year-old. Those sorts of feelings. Last one. Jesus is into revolutionizing grace. You see, he actually said, my mission in the world is to save the world, not to condemn it. He says it in John 3 and John 12. 
So what Jesus actually does by not answering the question of the religious elite is reinforces the ministry that he came to do is to not condemn, but to save, to love and not to serve, to model a different way of being and a different way of behaving. And that, my friends, is a revolutionary Jesus. That, my friends, is a revolutionary way of thinking. Jesus had the ability to look at a situation and know exactly what was going on because he could say to a paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. And a paralyzed man lies on the ground and says, I'm still lying here. He can say to a blind man, what do you want me to do for you? Thought it was obvious. Jesus can actually see through the situation, see through the circumstance and see everything that it is that you need in that moment. Singers and musicians, you can come. When I was 17, I decided I didn't want to follow Jesus for about a year. got a girlfriend. Her name was Melissa McDonald. Hung out with the boys. I was playing kind of elite sport as a 16, 17-year-old, um, first-grade men's hockey, field hockey, actually, doing my thing. And uh, I would, year in, year out, go on this camp. And I'd been going on this camp for several years, and I got to the October, and I was off, arrogant, mean, self-centered and rude. And a teacher by profession, but a leader on that camp, looked at me. We arrived on the Saturday. This was the Sunday night. It was back in the day when on camps you would do washing up in communal bowls at the end of a meal. And we would get the tea towels and wet the ends and twist them like this and flick people in the back of the legs. It was especially good if it didn't happen to you. And Ian looked at me and he goes, you know what, Rowan, he said, you've changed. And I went, <laughs> yeah. And he goes, and I don't like the change. And in a moment, in seconds, in seconds, somebody saw through my veneer, through the mirror that I'd, I'd placed, through the guard that was up. And that moment was the catalyst for me to actually make a decision to reconnect with Jesus for the first time and the first time in a long time because somebody had the courage to call me guilty but love me anyway. Somebody had the courage to say, this is your real situation, but I will love you anyway. Thank you for listening to the Liberty Church Podcast. If you are in New York City or will be visiting the New York area soon, please be our guest on Sunday. For service times and locations, please visit libertychurchnyc.com.